Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Sean Lee continues our series in Hebrews, sharing from Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. And now, here is Sean. Well, good morning, everyone. I hope you are all well. Certainly would have preferred uh, to be with you in person. I'm, I'm still not quite uh, real comfortable with uh, just speaking into uh, the computer screen, but I guess this is this is what we've got, so we'll make the best of it. Um, today's passage is, is Hebrews chapter eight, continuing on in your your uh, your study of this epistle. Uh, just as a very brief uh, recap from chapter seven, uh, we learn there about Christ being our high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And, uh, of course, that is first spoken of in in Psalm uh, 110, Uh, although the Old Testament doesn't really delve into the the details or provide any explanation of of this uh, new priesthood. It becomes fairly significant, uh, a a fairly significant uh, prophetic statement uh, as this new priesthood is is permanent and it's it's perfect as fulfilled in Christ, and uh, so chapter eight is a continuation of this of this topic. And uh, for our time this morning, I'll cons- uh, consider just two main points. Uh, first, we'll consider the superiority of Christ's ministry, and secondly, the superiority of the new covenant. Both of these are, are prominent themes woven through this entire uh, epistle. Read uh, the first eight verses of chapter eight. Uh, the point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you build or that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But the ministry Jesus has received is superior, is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one and is founded on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people. That's all we'll read for now. This this superiority of of, of Christ's ministry uh, stated in in, uh, two uh, features here early on in verses 1 and 2. We see that he is seated. The author tells us he has been seated. Uh, it's not the first or the last time he mentions that in this letter. We see it in, in chapter 1 right at the outset. In verse 3, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. 
uh, further along in, in the book, in chapter 10, we'll read uh, when he had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Uh, and then also in, in chapter 12, uh, we're reading that he, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So a, a, uh, a common uh, reference throughout this this epistle, and of course it pertains to the, the completion of his redemptive work. All that was necessary to deal with the sin problem was, was completed in full, uh, so that Christ's sacrifice was uh, com- was fully accepted by his Father as atonement for our sin. Uh, as you would have read last week in chapter 7, he sacrificed for their sins, our sins, once for all when he offered himself. So this work was was one time, and it was, was one time because it was perfect. And so he was given the the place of honor, the highest honor at, at the Father's right hand. Notice the contrast with the Aaronic priesthood. Um, every one of the, the the priests in the Levitical system stood in the presence of God. Uh, chairs weren't on the list of, of the tabernacle or the, the temple furnishings. Next, we we see that he's serving. In verse two, it's 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 intriguing because the writer almost appears to be contradicting himself. Um, you think if he's sitting, how then can he be serving? Uh, but of course there's no actual, uh, contradiction here. Uh, what's being presented are, are two features, two facets of, of Christ's current office. In terms of his redemptive work, it's finished. And so he sits at the place of honor as, as the one who has conquered sin and, and death. Then verse two pertains to the, the ongoing nature of his intercessory ministry. Uh, again, from chapter 7, that he, he ever lives to make intercession for us. So for the next uh, several verses, uh, the author draws our attention to, to a number of, of contrasts between the Levitical priestly ministry and that of Christ. Uh, and each of these contrasts highlight the superior nature of Christ's ministry. We see first that Jesus serves in the, the true tabernacle set up by God. Now, Aaron's sons served in a tabernacle, although designed by God, uh, was actually built by men. Also, we're told that that particular tabernacle was was a copy and a shadow of the true. So he's not he's not lessening the glory of the old system, but rather elevating uh, Christ's ministry and the sanctuary in which Christ serves, far superior, uh, far exceeding. Uh, the earthly tabernacle was, was physical. It was temporal. The heavenly is spiritual and therefore eternal. Uh, so Christ serves in a superior sanctuary. Verse 3, we, we see that the priests, um, they're appointed and by necessity, or they're, they're required to offer sacrifices. That That's an essential element of their duties. Although not elaborated at this point in the letter, the, the contrast is, is that, of, that, that Aaron's sons offered animal sacrifices. We know that's what they offered. Whereas Christ offered himself. So, of course, he, he offers a superior sacrifice, and that will be explored a little further and elaborated on further in the letter. 
verse 4 refers to the family lineage and, and physical location. While on earth, um, Jesus performed no priestly function, we're told. He was not of the tribe of Levi, he's from the tribe of Judah. A Levitical priests served under the Mosaic law. And as was mentioned earlier, they, they ministered at the earthly tabernacle and later temple. Now, while the basis of Christ's heavenly work took place on earth, specifically at the cross, uh, his current office is in the heavenly realm. There he serves, the true tabernacle, uh, always making intercession for us. Now, although the Aaronic priesthood was ongoing at the time of this writing, I believe this was written before the temple was destroyed, so there was still priestly function, functions occurring, um, eventually it would cease. We know that in 70 AD. But Christ's priesthood is, is eternal. It's, it's forever, unceasing. And so we see as, uh, as he does throughout his letter, uh, the author makes numerous contrasts between the Levitical system, which was limited in scope and, and in effectiveness, and he contrasts that with Christ's work, which is far superior because it's heavenly it's eternal, it's unceasing, it's perfect. Then we get to verse 6. It's, I see that as, as a linking verse. It connects the preceding portion of which we had just spoken, uh, dealing with Christ's ministry. And then he, he uh, takes us forward in the next section with deals with the new covenant. So we'll, we'll consider the superiority of this new covenant. First, it's, it's superior because it's new. Um, so one would ask, well, well, why is there a need for another covenant? What was wrong with the Mosaic contract? Well, the law in itself was, was good. Paul tells us that in Romans, the law, the law was good and holy and perfect. Uh, but it was not sufficient to save, nor was that ever the intention, as, as we learn from the following passages uh, in, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul wrote that the law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. Again, in, in Romans chapter 3, we uh, see something similar. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. Uh, Romans chapter 7 at one time, I lived without understanding the law. But when I learned the command, uh, not to covet, for instance, the power of sin came to life and I died. So I discovered that the law's commands, which were supposed to bring life, brought spiritual death instead. And, and uh, here in the passage in, in, in uh, Hebrews chapter verse 8, uh, we're told that, that God found fault with the people. So it wasn't a a shortcoming of the law, uh, it, it fulfilled its intended purpose. It wasn't uh, instituted to save, but to reveal God's um, God's righteousness, God's holiness, and and to illustrate just how far we are from God that we can't measure up. Uh, and and uh, here in verse eight, that God found fault with the people, specifically the nation of Israel. In context here. We recall back in, in Exodus chapter 19 when the law was introduced. The Israelites were gathered at Sinai uh, some three months after having been delivered out of Egypt. Uh, 
the Lord uh, meets with Moses and he invites the nation to enter into a covenant, uh, a contract with him. And so the Moses goes to the people to present this. And this is their response in, in, in Exodus chapter 19. They all declare with one voice, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. That was um, that was a big statement to make. Now, the remainder of the Old Testament is the historical record of them not keeping that word. They didn't keep the, com- the covenant simply because they couldn't. Uh, I, I would suggest that when... Uh, at the foot of Mount Sinai, when they declared their their loyalty and made that bold claim that all that the Lord has said we will do, they didn't really know what they were saying. Um, perhaps they were well intended, but this was bigger than that. Uh, the, something bigger than they were able to even uh, fulfill. They they didn't keep the covenant because they could not keep the covenant. Now now their behavior isn't really any different than yours or or mine. The point is, no one can keep the covenant, the covenant, the old covenant. No, no one would have been able to to fulfill that Old Testament, uh, the the spirit of the law, and of course, Christ uh, illustrates that on the on his Sermon on the Mount. You know, you have heard it said of old, and he, he, but I say to you, you know, he goes beyond the the letter of the law, which is hard enough to keep, but he delves into the spirit of the law, which is impossible to keep, and 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 so that's the point. They found fault with the people. They could not. They could not keep this covenant. They thought they could. They could not. And and uh, they're no different than us. If had we been standing there and making that claim, we would have fallen in the same way as we do. I, I think we would admit uh, every day of our experience that we fall short of the glory of God. Hence the need for a new covenant. And so we're told uh, also that it is founded on better promises. That's a curious statement. On, on the surface, it's, it seems a little strange. Aren't, after all, all of God's promises equally good? What is probably in view here is, is the, the terms of the Old Covenant. Uh, it contained the promise of blessing for obedience and death for disobedience. The law revealed God's righteousness, but gave no ability to attain it. The new covenant not only demonstrates God's righteousness in Christ, but it imputes it to us in Christ. In him, we have the the promise of eternal blessings. Now, in verse 8, the the author now launches uh, into an extensive quote from the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, uh, chapter 31. And uh, perhaps we'll, we'll read that. So, verse 8, but God found fault with the people and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their mouth, in their minds, and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, 
for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. So the prophecy begins with the words, or the phrase rather, the time is, is coming, indicating that from, from Jeremiah's vantage point, this was yet future. The primary fulfillment of this uh, new covenant concerns the, the nation of Israel, I, I would uh, suggest, uh, and the the ultimate fulfillment will be during Christ's earthly reign when he returns. Uh, but as the church, I, I also believe we enjoy some of those blessings as well in a, in a secondary sense. In this current church age, uh, we see a partial fulfillment, but the completion is, is still yet in the future. There are four features of this new covenant. I'm just going to highlight them quickly. Um, first, we see that there's the, the um, consolidation of, of Israel and Judah. That's significant because uh, the, lead, the readers of this epistle are, are, are Jews. Uh, and they're here reminded that the Lord has not turned his back on his covenant people, that he has a plan yet and he will carry it through. The promises he made in the old will yet hold true and be fulfilled. And so they hold out hope. This is a time when when Jeremiah was writing that the nation was divided, the north and the south. Uh, and yet he sees in the future, he's, 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 he's foretelling that there will be a time where there will be a, a, a rejoining, a, a regathering, uh, the, the, the consolation of, of Israel as, an, as the people of God. Uh, the second feature is that this the word uh, is going to be inscribed in their minds and hearts. This emphasizes the the internal nature of this covenant. It's not based on ritual or behavior. It's not external. It's, it's first internalized. The Lord is going to work from the heart outward, which is always his, his design and his desire. Thirdly, it uh, speaks of widespread knowledge, uh, universal knowledge, those who will know the Lord. I don't believe that's speaking to everyone being uh, saved necessarily, but there will be this widespread knowledge of God in his, uh, in his purposes. And fourthly, forgiveness. Uh, of course, uh, a major feature of this, of this covenant, forgiveness. And, and of course, it's predicated on the blood of Christ as he, uh, on the night he was betrayed, he, he's with his disciples and he said, this, this, this is the blood of the new covenant. Um, and, and, uh, offers of himself and death, a shedding of blood to secure our forgiveness. So, uh, just to conclude, uh, throughout this epistle, the author presents his case that, uh, what we have in Christ far exceeds anything experienced in the Levitical system. Uh, chapter 80 presents evidence that, that Christ has a superior ministry and that uh, we have entered into a superior covenant. Now, for the first century Jew, the, the temptation, of course, was to return to the old religion. It was familiar. It was comfortable. It was their social sphere. It had been a, a, a 1,200 year old uh, tradition. So the temptation was strong to, to, to go back, particularly as they endured persecution for their faith in Christ. Now for us, Judaism probably doesn't hold any attraction, uh, but we can ask ourselves, is there 
Is there anything that draws my devotion away from Christ? Perhaps something from your life uh, before you were saved. You've been saved for a long time. Uh, maybe uh, since you were a child, there may be still something uh, that, that vies for our affection and, and uh, draws us and, and tempts us. Whatever that something is, it does our hearts good uh, to remind ourselves that Christ is better. Christ is better. Uh, the theme of this letter, and uh, although written specifically to the Jewish people who are who are under the strain and the temptation to return to their their their, their religious roots, uh, the the circumstances are different from us, but the heart problem remained the same, and uh, we want to to turn our hearts upward, to set our affection on things above, and to be reminded that whatever. Whatever it is that, that attracts us, whatever it is in this world, it's fleeting, it's fading, it's it's deficient. Uh, in Christ, we have all that we need for life and godliness. He is superior. He is better. Um, and, and we can find rest and hope and joy and peace in him. So uh, the Lord bless uh, you today. I uh, may encourage your hearts. Again, wish uh, I could be there with all of you, or uh, wish we could be all together in, in person. Um, nonetheless, uh, may the Lord use his word to, to strengthen and encourage and, and uh, help us uh, today and as we head into a new week. I hope to see you all soon. Uh, bye-bye. Lord, we thank you for the message that we've heard. We thank you for coming to live among us, to uh, give your life for us, to become that high priest that we can turn to, that we can come to with boldness, who has himself gone through uh, death and sacrifice so that we may have freedom from sin and its effects that we can enjoy the benefits of a new covenant where we will experience knowledge of you, uh, freedom from sin, and enjoy in your presence. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving yourself uh, for this purpose. Thank you for the uh, reminder today of what you have done, what you have accomplished, and what you continue to do. We pray that you would help us throughout the week to be mindful of your presence with us, of your intercession for us, that our hearts would often turn to you, that we would remember that you are the mediator of a new covenant by which we have access to the one who gives us life. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you're in the Timmins area or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.